Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, indeed, we are here, and we are happy to be here. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We come to you with Caregiver SOS On Air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and podcasts of all of our shows are available as well. And all you have to do is Google Caregiver SOS On Air, and you will find them. Carol Zernial is a graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, a nationally known gerontologist who has worked with the WellMed Charitable Foundation for a lot of years now. Uh, an official decade. I just had my 10th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Thank you very That's much. That's pretty exciting. I know. I got a vase. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I got a prize. Next year you get a vase I with get flowers. I a prize, yeah. Just waiting for my parking spot. Ooh. Yeah, you could use that. I've seen them out there. But not my, not, no, not, not me. your I, name. I, yeah, they only do it once a year, and February oh. is not the month to, ha- to earn your 10-year stripes, really? apparently. Yeah. Too it's bad. A, it's a sad story. It is sad. I'll, I'll talk to Mark Feinberg. The, please, uh, please. Guy hey, who takes care of Hi, equipment and buildings. You're my All best right. friend, Mark. I'll call Mark. <laughs> now, the uh, interesting thing about uh, the opening of our show is we talk about fascinating stuff, and you've come across some things that uh, are, are a surprise and not a surprise. And, and one example would be, who are the ones who buy most into fake news? <laughs> I, I couldn't even believe this headline. I mean, in, in light of everything that we've gone through in the last two years and the conclusion of the Mueller investigation and what's fake news and what isn't fake news, and what's the headline? That older, uh, they did a study of people over the age of 65 um, from the 2016 election. I'm sure Mueller wrote about this, um, <laughs> the 2016 election. And that older people are seven times more likely to share fake news than people age 18 to 29 than young people. That was in the AARP bulletin. I mean, go figure. They looked at 1,300 Facebook users. So who only one in 12 um, of any age shares fake news. But those over age 65 are the ones most likely to share these fake stories. I don't, I don't believe it says why. It does not say why. It doesn't say why, but why? <laughs> not a bad question. Well, it may be uh, that they believe stuff. I'm trying to figure out, is it, is it um, you know, we, we say people become more like themselves as they age, right? And so these websites that tend to have fake news on either side of the aisle uh, will, you know, they're drawn to that particular opinion. It solidifies what they already believe, right? right? And they're more likely to be, to know themselves exactly what they believe um, than a younger population necessarily. So maybe it's that, or maybe it's retirement. uh, And we just need to get um, some other activities going besides reading the internet and retirement. Exactly. By the way, we'll be talking with Deb Hip in a few minutes. She is a writer and has done a lot of writing on caregiving and seniors. Long-distance caregiving is something she had experience with, and she'll be joining us, Deb Hip, and we look forward to talking with her. What else have you got? Well, you know, ah. I, was per- oh, now, I was perusing the Ohio State. University's impact website. One of the interesting things, and you should know this because you run a foundation, right? Right. And in talks, and I've been to the uh, give receptions, uh, you know, the bottom line is 
you feel better giving than getting. Well, you know, so this That's is, what everybody maybe says. Maybe this is a theme. Maybe it's because the Mueller report came out and that we're having this theme and this cathartic moment of turning the page. Um, but, you know, there's so much hostility and anger. It, we hear it around us these days. And so um, maybe the cure is actually doing not something nice for somebody else. The other day, I actually let someone drive in front of me. I let them in line wow. while I was waiting to get on the highway, which is kind of a rare thing for me because I'm I'm a mad driver. I'm not a friendly driver. Drive friendly in Texas. Well, that's having not me. ridden with you, I'm surprised you noticed because you never look around. <laughs> you are focused on, on what's drive, ahead. I am, I am safety first, yeah. right? And letting people in willy-nilly is not my thing. But I'm like, all right, this person looks pretty desperate. I'm going to let him in. Um, but it turns out that if you do nice things with no expectation of any kind of return on that, right? I wasn't expecting him to let me in later on in life. Never going to see the guy again. Uh, there are psychological benefits. You get that tax break, financial relief, and you may even have a longer life. Really? So, yes. So, you know, giving, it, it releases, and, you know, there's some studies that says, you know, we talk about stress a lot because this is a show for caregivers. Yes. And we talk about those stress hormones that build up like you're, you're ch- getting chased by a tiger all the time. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is caregivers are, do, are giving themselves away caregiving, but it's, it's not the same as necessarily as doing that kind of random acts of kindness that we used to see the bumper stickers for. Well, the other day driving to get... Uh, our little boy, we have twin boys, Kennedy, a little blonde five-year-old, loves bean tacos. Only, oh. only from Taqueria Vallarta on Broadway in know Yes, yes. And if you bring him a taco from anywhere else, he knows. he say, this is not from Taqueria Vallarta. So I'm in line the other day in the carryout, and I pull up at the window, and, and they say, oh, the car ahead paid for you. So that was so a nice thing. that was thing. one of those random acts of kindness. Yes. Well, you know, it was interesting because the article talked about somebody who's um, their father, who was 85, planned his whole day around the obituary page, which— Because he's not in it. <laughs> because, well, A, he wasn't in it, but B, everyone, you know, the people he knew were Ooh. in it. And so he had to start his day and look to see wh- who died, what funerals was he going to this week, which is oh, kind of a sad thing. It is. But it made this, you know, this researcher think about— um, you know, the obituaries and what could you learn about people from reading them? And what he found is that those that had mention of their charitable giving, that they either volunteered or they gave money away, their, you know, their personal philanthropy and spirit of giving tended to live, it was about six years longer than people that there was no mention of that in their obituary. Really? Not that that's the definitive bio, you know, biography of someone's life, but if it was a big deal, a big enough deal to merit paying for that extra space in the obituary, they tended to live six years longer. No kidding. Which I thought was kind of interesting. I have a late friend named John Russell who used to work for Scripps Howard News, which used to be a news bureau. He every day read the New York Times obituaries because he loved the writing. Well, the writing is excellent, and you can also read the bridal section because if you want to laugh, just, you know, the people that will pay for a New York Times engagement or bridal announcement, my favorite of all time was the bride's trousseau, which we don't even get the word trousseau, all her clothes that she was taking with her on her honeymoon, consisted of bikinis and furs. 
I love that line. I'd Somebody, like to yeah. meet her. <laughs> Who doesn't want to meet the woman that's wow. only traveling with bikinis and furs? And then you want to know, are they still married? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I can't update you on that no. one, but they were off to a great start. That's pretty cool. So, so give and feel good. Give and feel good, absolutely. And it should make a difference. Well, now you you had one in the AARP that you were looking at that I didn't get a chance to look at that said, are you vulnerable to scams? Do right. You, do you happen to know what might make me vulnerable to a scam? Well, you're not old enough yet. Seniors, uh, well, you're not 65 and over. Generally, people who are 65 and over are vulnerable to scams that come where they use your name. Carol, uh, we're delighted to offer this opportunity for you, and they get sucked right into that. Yeah, just with the name. Yes, with the name, uh, and getting a personal contact, usually by phone, sometimes by email, but mostly by phone, where where people just get suckered into it uh, and listen and then commit to give money. Well, I don't know if you saw John Oliver, if you watched John Oliver, which don't do that with your children. That would be a very bad idea. Um, he's on HBO and will say absolutely anything. Right. He's on late enough. He's though, on right? late at night. Yeah. Um, but he did a whole segment on um, the, the the spamming of the calls, you know, the, the robocalls, the incessant number of robocalls. Oh, which, you know, and the robocalls, if you pick up, you know, there's probably somebody trying to scam you on the other end of the line if you, if right. you do pick up. And, and he hasn't been back on the air to find out, but he actually gave out the um, the uh, communications agency in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the FCC that could pass laws that reduced robocalls and scams, um, but they haven't. And so he got the top six people, and he created a robocall that called them. Oh, I love it! Every ninety minutes, and played bagpipe music, which that's was funny, really funny. At least I thought it was. Those funny. are the commissioners of the FCC. Yes, yes, and so they were going to get spammed until you know. And and when they talk about, well, you know, we've got the, that don't call list. Um, that in but the, what don't call list has got all these tiny rules in some contract somewhere that makes it impossible to get out of it. And so he ran, he put how to get out of his robocalling system for those six people in the first chapter of Moby Dick and ran it on screen as fast as he possibly could. And he's like, you know, record this, play it back, and you'll see how you can get the robocall stopped. Wow. It was actually kind of funny because the, the, it's terrible. I mean, either your phone rings so much you can't answer it or... You know, the number of calls that you're getting of somebody who's trying to take your money or scam you in some way. And, you know, I worry about that for my own relatives right. who are older. Right. Uh, because some of them are convincing. They sound like a real person. Hey, you know, I just got this call from your grandson. That's a pretty and common And he was one. in this accident and he doesn't have a credit card. You know, those kinds of calls. And people have good hearts. And they fall well, for Well, they them. do, essentially. That's right. Now, with the kind of spamming and and robocalls we see, they're also very creative in using phone numbers that look familiar, so they may use your exchange. Yes. Yesterday, I turned off my phone for a telephone conference. I had 11 phone calls, all that looked like numbers inside my building in one hour. Wow. 11 phone calls, and they all looked like they were somebody I knew. It was related to another number. I've started not answering if I don't recognize the number or the area code. And I figure, you know what, if it's important, they'll leave a message. Right. I look for the message and I call him back. In fact, I was talking to one <laughs> of our physicians I, and he, I called him and he didn't answer and I was supposed to call him, right? We had an arranged time to call. 
And you called me back. You said, sorry, I didn't recognize the number. I thought you were a spammer. And so, you, you know, we're all doing it. You know, what, what good is a phone if none of us answer it? In fact, uh, what, what they now say. It has nothing to do with caregiving, but I'm sure everyone out there is annoyed by these phone calls. And <laughs> seniors uh, get bombarded with them because they are a target. Right. And caregivers are already exhausted without having the phone ring 24-7. You know, I, I like to leave my phone on in case something happens in an emergency but now the calls are starting to come at all hours of the night. I turn mine off. I have to turn it off. Well, yeah. you have to because you don't know if right. you're going to get spammed. I mean, the only ones I worry about are the three kids upstairs. <laughs> and they know where to find you. <laughs> I have a feeling. And they do. 5.36 a.m. Uh, We're going to come back to this and talk to uh, Deb Hipp in just a couple of moments about, speaking of phones, long-distance caregiving. caregiving. She'll be with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernio. We're delighted you're with us. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, we have been promising, and once again, we hope we are delivering a really neat guest. Deb Hip is joining us. We're going to take a look at long-distance caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And Deb is a writer. She writes about senior living, health, personal finance, and lifestyle issues. And she's written for some really neat publications and outlets, including Next Avenue. We often use items from Next Avenue right here on Caregiver SOS on Air, written for United Healthcare. And others, and we're delighted, uh, Deb, to have you on Caregiver SOS on air. Thanks for joining us. Uh, yes. Hi, Ron and Carol. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to be here. Now, one of the things you mentioned to us off the air is that uh, you yourself has done long-distance caregiving for your dad, which is always a challenge to be not only a caregiver but long-distance. Can you tell us what that was about and how it worked out? Well, I have I have two brothers also. So and and then my mom, my dad was still living at home. So my mom was his primary caregiver. Then my brothers and I were what you would think of as more secondary caregivers. And um, one brother lived a couple hours away. One lived in the same town, and then I live uh, four hundred miles away. And your so, father had Alzheimer's. Is that right? Yes, he had Alzheimer's disease. Yes. And how was your and, mother? De- um, how was your mother dealing well, with that? Well, you know, it was hard. It was hard because she she really, you know, she couldn't really leave him alone at home after a while. He, his memory was really bad, and um, it wasn't safe to leave him at home. So um, she used to come here and visit me, and then she, you know she had to stop that. She couldn't leave, and um, it was hard on her. She, uh, she got kind of depressed, and. Um, it was very difficult. We had a guest on last week who talked about, uh, not the exact, but a similar situation where you really felt like a prisoner without bars. That's true. Yes, yes. She, um, right. And even when my older brother would go over there, and when she, one time she was in the hospital. She had gone in the hospital, and that's another thing. Caregivers get run down often 
often die even before the person they're taking care of. Um, she was in the hospital, and, and he also noticed it, you know, that sort of prison-like feeling that he couldn't leave. But, um, you know, he did take my dad out and went out, and it was actually a good outing. But, yeah, it, it, you can be a good prisoner in your own home. Um, but there are ways to, to help with that if, if you'd want to hear about any of those Sure. at some point. Well, I'd like to hear about it right now. Okay. All right. Well, you know, it's basically known as respite care. A couple things you can do. You can, A, just ask, check in with your people you know in your network who want to help but don't really know what to do. It could be people at your church or your neighbors or maybe another relative. And um, ask them if they can commit to coming over just even a couple hours once or, once a week. That's not really enough, but if you have two or three people, maybe you can get, you know, maybe up to several hours a week where you can just go out to lunch with friends or or go shopping or even just walk out in nature or something to calm yourself and realize that your whole life isn't about caregiving for another person. And um, you can also hire even someone from an in-home care agency uh, to come and just sit. And um, if you don't have, a, you know, a network of people, you can even look into community volunteers who do that very thing. Well, and there are websites you can go to and match up with a volunteer or look and see what's in your town and get someone to come volunteer to just sit with the person and uh, while you go take a, a break well, I can for your re- mental and, and physical health. The the respite issue is so important and a lot of people can barely imagine, you know, getting that time off. Um, I can and, and sometimes they're reluctant to accept that help. I I remember I ran a respite program years ago and the caregivers were very reluctant. Oh no, no, I don't need respite. And I would say, well let me we're, I'm gonna come over with someone to to watch your husband for just an hour and you don't even have to go anywhere. You can, like, go in the back room and take a nap or go out in the yard. You don't even have to leave. And so we would, we would get there, and, and they would say, well, can I run an errand? And I'd say, sure, we're going to be here for an hour. you got time to run an errand. So they would run an errand. And then the next time they would say, well, do you think I could have two hours? It'd be like, sure, you could have two hours. Yeah. You know, and my goal was to get them to four hours. Well, that didn't take long. Once we got to two hours, four was easy. And then it was, oh, wow, is it more than one day a week? You know, how, many days, how many days a week can I have somebody come for four hours? So that, that um, once they realize that their loved one is in good hands, um, or at least adequate hands, <laughs> <laughs> that it's okay, yeah. it's safe to leave, uh, that can be a real lifesaver. Well, I guess, and I'm sure you've seen this, Deb, and, and I know Carol has, uh, the challenge very often is a caregiver believes no one can do what they do. Yeah, that, that happens um, all the time. Um, quite a, you know, it's very common. It's very common, and it could be because they, they're there more than anyone else and really have a different view of the person who needs care. But the important thing is for the person who's the primary caregiver to, you know, try to delegate some things, even if they don't trust anyone to stay with the person they're taking care of. They can get help with other things like um, going to pick up groceries or maybe someone 
you know, getting just all the errands you have to run, you know, going shopping or getting your car worked on, getting oil changed, you know, or someone could come over and mow the lawn, clean the house, cook. There's a lot of, of ways to help um, that person. Well, but I hope I would hope that they would eventually allow someone to sit so they can get out and refresh their mind and spirit. We're going to come right back to Deb Hip. I just want to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking uh, to Deb about not only long-distance caregiving, but caregiving tips as well. And if you go to her website, debhip.com, hip with two Ps, D-E-B-H-I-P-P, you will find just a slew of articles on caregiving. Well, Deb, talk a little bit about your own experience long-distance caregiving, because that's a different animal. Uh, your mom's the primary. We talked about you know, the need for respite, the need to have people help you out every now and then. But when you're a long-distance caregiver, you're not there to go pick up the groceries. Um, you can't I, see your dad is having a bad day. So what, what are the special challenges of being a long-distance caregiver? Well, I think... Well, what I what I would do is I would go every couple of months. I would drive there, and um, every couple of months. So I would make my own. I would. They didn't want to accept any any help. It was it was kind of strange. But I would prepare like a bunch of frozen meals that they could put in a crock pot. I figured that's something I can do. You know, I would look for things I could do that were practical. So I would visit. I would um, clean the house. While I was there, I would bring this food they could cook to, so that it would be easier for them. And, um, <clears throat> you know, at the same time, one disadvantage of that being long distance is, you know, I, when, you, when you drop in for two or three days every couple months, you know, I didn't have a realistic picture of what it was like. You know, my dad's uh, condition, I could see it was bad. You know, he was still living at home. And he'd have his lucid moments, but he was, you know, I didn't, my mom, you know, lived with him every day. So if I saw her, you know, it, it's different when he asked me the same question four times than it is if he's asked her the same question a hundred times a day. It can be really frustrating. Um, and so when, so when when you would come in every couple of months, would you notice a difference in your dad? Was it... A noticeable change, yeah. Um, yeah. or or were there changes in your mom? Just you know, her as the caregiver. You know, did you have concerns about her and how well she was doing? Yeah, I would always notice changes in my dad because he was getting worse every time. And um, you know, I would know at first he was forgetful, and then you know, a couple of visits later, you know, he was sleeping even more than he was. Um, or he, I noticed in the last visit before he passed away that when we went to breakfast, he, he walked like he was just a hundred years old. I mean, I'd never seen him walk like that before. And he was always a very active man, you know, out in the yard working. And, um, and then my mom and dad, she got so run down that she went in the hospital. My dad went in the hospital one week and the day he got out, she had to go to the ho- into the hospital for a week. Wow. So did you have so, to, did you have to come home for an extended period of time? I did, I did come home. No, no, I did come home because my other brothers were there. So, and also I, it's not like I had a job. I had a full-time job 
which I do now too, but now I'm a, a writer, I can work remotely. At that time, I had a job where I had to report every day. Right. So I couldn't, couldn't, they didn't really need me to, to come home. Um, I wanted to, I, I asked them to, you know, but they didn't really want me to. Well, and so that's I let my the- other brothers take care of it. And then I stayed in contact and I went home like the following week and stayed for not, not a long time, but almost a week. There's an interesting balance between the on-site caregiver and the long-distance caregiver. In my own case, my uh, dad had dementia. My mom was uh, uh, doing okay, but uh, needed a lot of care. And my brother was taking care of them. And I remember one day calling uh, and saying to my brother, Jim, you know, I've, I've got a couple suggestions about some stuff. I read about it. And he said to me, I think that's great. They'll be on the plane to San Antonio in about two hours. They're yours now. Okay, that sounds like my brother. And I said, I said, Jim, that's okay. Forget I even said yeah, anything. Yeah, no suggestions. Everything's good. Yeah. It's all great. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, my brother, his retort was always, "You're welcome to come here and do it. Your, you move here and do it yourself." Yeah, the same idea. And, exactly. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I now I have a better understanding of that because, you know. <laughs> They, they're doing a lot, so best not to criticize them. At the same time, that person needs to appreciate what I could do or you could do from far away. Right. You know, like I looked up, did research online into veterans' benefits for my dad and called around getting prices of in, in-home care agencies. And um, I actually did a, set, a, set up an appointment with an elder law attorney. So... Actually, did a lot. So, so both parties need to appreciate what the other sure. one does. All right, now stay and just with kind us. Kind of let them do their thing. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking with Deb Hip, long distance caregiving, and a whole lot more. And she's done a lot of writing on the subject of seniors and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. We're so glad you were with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air, having an interesting conversation with Deb Hip about long-distance caregiving and a whole lot more. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerdiel. And I saw that, Deb, one of the things that you've worked on are guides for seniors and adult children looking for senior living choices. That turns out to be a really tough decision for, for most families. Yeah, it is a tough decision because it's a very emotional decision and sometimes I mean I ideally you know most people want just want to just stay living in their home you know where they've lived for 40 or 50 or 10 years but sometimes that's no longer safe or sometimes people want to move and they they uh, a lot of these senior living communities are really really nice they are like you have your own apartment and um, you know someone gets to a point where they I want their meals prepared for them, and it's just housekeeping. It's a lot easier, but, yeah, it's it's a hard decision, you know, because, um, you know, my mom was adamant that they did not want to to uh, move into any kind of senior living, and then um, and one day she just told me she was taking a bus tour of senior living communities that, that she saw, and it's uh, like, oh, great, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, did did you did you know, they move into a community or did your father uh, move into a community? Well, well, no, they they would not move. They they, they didn't really need. Well, I they could have 
could have, and it would have helped, but they didn't really need to. My, no, my dad eventually died in his sleep one night. So, yeah, so he was still at home. Well, you know, oh yeah, he was still it, home. My mom, my mom did not move and doesn't want to move, but she did see one that she really liked and said, "If I have to move, that's the one I want." Well, there you go. See, that's always that's a nice. Start. That's a start. That's a start. She said it was really nice, but she's she's a, a big introvert, and and she just wouldn't like being around people all the time. That would be her big issue. That explains you why know? you wrote about that. One of the pieces on your website, introverts, <laughs> right? introverts in senior <laughs> <does>. living. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and I'm you know I'm a writer. I'm an introvert too, but she's an extreme introvert and. Uh, it's funny, every time I see that article, that picture of the woman, you know, peering around right. the window with her coffee reminds me of my mom. <laughs> well, that, you know, that's funny. Um, I had an experience about a year ago with my great aunt who was 97, and she decided she wanted to move. And we did a big three days of touring every assisted living that we could. And we picked out one that was really pretty, and we thought there was lots going on. And we took her over there, and she looked at it, and she said, well, it's pretty, and we're like, yeah, but it's pretty. I mean, it looks really nice. And she's like, yeah, I, it's probably nice. But, you know, you could tell that she was just not buying into the idea that this was going to be a good fit. She didn't care how pretty. The, she was like, pretty means expensive. And pretty means, you know, <laughs> that they've got flowers in the vase. That doesn't tell me anything about the people who live here. It's true. Or work there. Or work there. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you can yeah. have a very pretty place, you know, and that's uh-huh. all they have going for them. And, and that's actually where she was moving from. They decorated so beautifully, and there was just mm-hmm. nothing going on with the help <laughs> at all. And the food was <laughs> it was a disaster. So, you know. did, did she eventually move to one? She did. She decided to go to independent living. Oh, okay. Well, the food food was good, but, you know, um, that would have been in her last months of her life. I'm not sure that was the best decision, but it was her decision, and she was certainly uh, capable of of making that determination. And and she did. um, She was able to move back where she was closer to her friends, and she liked the food. And for her, I think um, that was worthwhile. You also write about breaking the promise you've made to never put your folks into a uh, assisted or independent living or nursing home of or nursing goodness, home goodness you know so right yeah th- so you know it, talk about that if you if you've written about it you know what what is is it okay to break that promise well i mean you know i <clears throat> i actually got that idea from reading a book called cruising through caregiving by a woman named jennifer fitzpatrick and um you know, she has a whole chapter devoted to it, and it, it's kind of what I concluded was it's, it's better not to make that promise if you can help it, because there's a good chance you might have to break it. You can't predict what will happen or, um, you know. Yeah, but our parents I mean, are sneaky. They'll look at you and say, Deb, promise, promise me promise you'll me never put never me that. in a home. Well... You know, I, I, my mom has done that, you know, but I, I told her I can't promise because <laughs> I just seen too many, too much, you know, I just, no one can promise that any of us could end up, could have an accident or, or any kind of thing that could happen that we would need full-time care. Well, see, and I'm the yeah. opposite. I tell my son, promise me you will put me in the home. You won't try to take <laughs> care of me. You know, don't waste your time if I have Alzheimer's. Please, just put me someplace adequate. Mm-hmm. And you said to your husband, don't expect <laughs> me to care for you. <laughs> yeah, really. You'll be in a home. You'll be in, we're going to a home. You know, we're going to go someplace where you have a place. That, you're safe. And So you made a promise. 
Yeah, it yeah. It wasn't what he wanted. It was, <laughs> exactly. It's just the opposite. But, you know, we, I think we have to give caregivers permission to break that promise. Because we, we, if mm-hmm. someone does make that promise, it is with the best of intentions, and they really want to yeah. keep it. But it's, that was with the information they had at the time. Um, right. And situations change. So. Yes, they, they do. And, and, you know, especially with Alzheimer's, you know, you know, of course, like my mom was determined. My dad was never going into any kind of memory care place. And I kept telling her, you have to understand that it will get to a point if he's still alive where he can't take care of himself at all. You know, and she just wouldn't hear of it. I mean, he was still functional and, uh, you know, he, he passed away in his sleep and... And after how you know, long how long did she take care of him? Well, he had a diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's, but you know this was a, a diagnosis that was long overdue, in my right. opinion. Right. You know, it usually and plus, is. That's another thing. When you live far away, I would go home three you know three times a year. I didn't even notice it until one Christmas when my dad, after we'd celebrated Christmas the day before, my dad got up the next day and thought it was Christmas and wished everybody a Merry Christmas. And I was like, that's weird. You know, <laughs> yeah, that and, was yesterday. We did that yesterday. That was a tip-off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, and then he, uh, we, we went out somewhere and drove back in, and my car was parked there in my other brother's car, and he said, oh, looks like we have company. And, you know, that's just... Right. That was let me know that... So mm-hmm. it took two years... Two or three years when it was bad enough that my mom couldn't really leave my dad alone. Hmm. But he he um, could still take care of himself, although with with Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, it's grooming. No matter how, he was uh, impeccably groomed, and he got to the point where he didn't want to shower. Uh, he didn't shave. You know, it was very sad because with that disease, pretty much the pers- you think, oh, they just stopped remembering things but really their personality just disappears disappears i mean they're still in there but the personality just kind of goes away and they're not the same personality now we're going to talk more about this with deb hip talking about long distance caregiving alzheimer's all forms of dementia and her work not only helping to care for her parents but as a freelance writer Writing about a lot of these topics, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Well, Deb, I thought you made two really good points. One is we get the diagnosis. I mean, we kind of, as families, you know, my mother had Alzheimer's. My mother-in-law had Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And as families, we tend to, you know, be a little bit in denial about these strange memory lapses that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes we don't want to know that there's, we we don't want that dementia diagnosis. So that's Mm -hmm. one, you know, which uh, delays us being able to plan um, you know, if it's re- find out if it's a reversible situation like a B a vitamin B deficiency or a urinary tract infection, right. uh-huh. you know, um, and and then and I'm forgetting the other thing that I had in my head. Talking about ways in which you deal with these issues, right? So you know, it it, it is important to kind of. And we'll get I Carol diagnosed next I see, week. Yeah, we'll have me diagnosed for my memory loss. Um, yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's it's important to for if we to try to face reality or to try. I know that in my family we were not of the same opinion about do we tell mom? Do we not tell mom? Um, did 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 your dad know he had a problem? Because my mother did. 
she would say, you know, I have that thing. I have that thing that I do. And we'd be like, yes, we know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, he wasn't a very, he was never someone to just open up and tell you all his feelings. So he, you know, would say things to my mom like, oh, I went, I ended up driving to, you know, a town like 20 miles away <laughs> to Goodfield today. Uh, I don't know why, you know, and then, um, you know, he, I think he knew, I think he knew, I think he, that he got really depressed and, um, because he knew he couldn't, not only was his body physically breaking down, he couldn't do all the things he wanted to do, but he had seen many of his friends who had Alzheimer's and he, he, uh, had always expressed that he never wanted to, to be like that. So, um, and then if I can say one more thing about the denial thing, sure. um, as the person who lived far, farthest away, I was the, probably the most adamant that he should go to the doctor and get diagnosed or checked out. But everyone else was, was saying, it's not that bad. It's you're not, not here. You don't know. So it's not that bad. And, um, and, you're, and you're going, you but know. it is, it looks kind of, it, it looks kind of different. Well, I did think of the other thing. You mentioned he, he had a different personality. And so one of the yes. things that we tell families is personality mm-hmm. never changes as a result of someone getting older. If you have an older loved one and their personality changes, something has happened. There's a, you know, there's, there's been something in yeah. their brain. There's some disease. There's a pathology that leads to personality change. It is not normal. Yeah, his personality it just it just kind of disappeared. I don't know how because he was you know always joking around before and he'd always ask me about my job and you know what's you know very talkative and we'd go out and go out to dinner and you know he just he he almost quit talking completely except once in a while he would get up you know like one of the last visits he got up and then late at night while I was reading a book and just talked and talked and talked about an incident in his childhood and who was there and all their names. And I was just amazed that he remembered all those details but couldn't remember something as simple as, you know, giving me money to buy a pizza one one night. He tried to give it to me again like two or three times. Well, it it sounds like he always recognized his family members, even if he didn't recognize your cars. Yeah, he he still did. You know, like I say, he... You know, he he passed away in his sleep, and he always said, he had always said his whole life, I want to go in my sleep, you know, <laughs> and he did. And that's why, in a way, it was like, I was really, really sad, but I've already grieved so much for like two years. I'd grieved and grieved and grieved <laughs> the loss of my dad. So I still continued to grieve, just, you know, a lot after he died, but on the, on the same time, I thought, well... This is what he wanted. Maybe it's maybe it's the best for him, and and you know, because I don't know what was going to happen, Looks but like, it wasn't uh, going to improve. Like Nancy Reagan writing about the long goodbye. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's um, you know I guess you call it a lot of anticipatory grief. Right. You know, like if someone's sick for a long time and you know that is they're going to die, then you know you you grieve. Well, now a you... lot of it. You mentioned your mom. Uh, we're almost out of time. She's in her 80s. She's still living at home? Yeah, and she had uh, um, like a kidney. She had 
chronic kidney disease, has chronic kidney disease, and so she would get dehydrated and not take care of herself. That's how she ended up in the hospital. So are you caregiving so. for her long distance now? Yeah, but she's she actually, after my dad passed away, she is healthier. I, you know, I... It's hard to explain, but she's not, not she's unusual. Not she's, down. Yeah, she's probably taking better care of herself. We've got to stop you right here, Deb. Do you have a website people can go to? Sure. Yeah, you can just go to my name. It's www.debhipp.com. Well, thank you very much, and we really appreciate you coming on and sharing these stories. Well, thanks, Ron and okay. Carol. I uh, really appreciate you inviting me. Well, you take care, and we uh, okay. look forward to talking to you again Thank down you. the road. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, thank you for sticking with us, son. Caregiver SOS on air at the end of every one of our programs. We bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert, not only on addictions, but caregiving as well. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is with us. I'm Ron Aaron. And we throw out a topic, and Dr. Jamie bites right on it. Well, I was um, actually thinking about uh, exhaustion (laughs) recently, and how it feels to be exhausted. And, Jamie, I know... You know something about that, having dealt with a recent family illness. But, you know, it seems like people that have small children, as Ron knows something about, uh, and caregivers, um, exhaustion is kind of routine, right? But why is (laughs) letting yourself get exhausted on a long-term basis, why is that probably not a good thing? Well, exhaustion is something that, that, yes, I feel, felt as a caregiver for my dad recently, and, uh, and, and, so, and I continue to. But also exhaustion for a caregiver is almost a 24-7 issue. I mean, these feelings of, of being extraordinarily tired, not getting your proper sleep, not having good REM sleep, they create such feelings inside of us of irritability. They feel, you know, create anxiety. It gives us incredible difficult times to concentrate on, on anything in front of us. And I think really what exhaustion does also, worse than anything, it, it detaches us. It, it, it allows us to like forget about the things that jazzed us up, that kept us engaged. Uh, it creates an isolation. Like you just want to get away from everybody to be your own physical and emotional support. And we know that's, that's a recipe for disaster. So we're not concentrating, we're detached, we're, you know, we, it's almost like I always feel like I have earmuffs on or something. I'm underwater um, and there's no light getting in. You know, depression seeps in uh, anytime I get too tired. And you uh, can't keep your eyes open. Well, and, and yeah, you can't keep your eyes open and not being able to, to concentrate. So, I mean, this sounds like a recipe for accidents. 
for not managing medications, um, for you, all kinds of things happening. Oh, my gosh. It's really the, the foundation for severe caregiver burnout. I mean, it's the first step exhaustion where we, where we become totally physically and emotionally depleted. And then we're susceptible to, to anything and everything kind of affecting us. We, we really don't have boundaries in our lives when we're exhausted. We, we, we have unrealistic expectations about what we need to do. We ourselves jump into this kind of control mode. Remember I said you become more controlling when you're feeling more out of control. And what does exhaustion do? It just creates this out-of-control feeling. So um, it, it really is the predecessor of so many negative things. And so even though we could pile on what caregiver burnout now is, Let's just focus on this because right now this is what is really the foundation that creates this this withdrawal and, and kind of descent into burnout and compassion fatigue. Well, with exhaustion, everything is a heavy lift, right? Everything is harder. It's almost like um, it's nighttime all the time. You, it's it's just hard to face any situation when you're too tired. And we had a guest on the air. Oh, I think it was last year, and she had four questions that she always asked caregivers who seem to really be struggling. Are you hungry? Are you tired? And I and I thought those were really great. Just those, you know, good old physical needs that we have. Have we had enough to, you know, have we had enough water to drink? We dehydrated. Where we get headaches? Have we had enough to eat? Are we running low on energy? Um, and then are we exhausted? Where we really can't concentrate and function. Absolutely. And let me bring this to your audience and in, in, in the acronym. I'm sure she brought it to you as which is HALT, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired, HALT. I think and you're right. It was HALT. The, right? Yeah, that's great. It's like you're maybe. The, was I talking to you, Jamie? <laughs> was I, I'm too Are tired you? to remember. So was I talking to you and I was just too tired to remember? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's it. HALT is, is came from the recovery community. And what Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired, or HALT was, that acronym, was for addicts and alcoholics to realize if any one of those four conditions were happening, they were one step closer to, to relapse. And so I think it's, we have so much to learn in the caregiver community, I believe, from the 12-step community. Um, you know that my feelings about codependency and, and caregiving, where we're working harder than the person in front of us, that to, for our listeners to remember HALT in terms of uh, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and to ask them the, those questions, it's critical because the foundation, again, of where they're about to go to this burnout and compassion fatigue place, it all starts with, with those four um, characteristics. I have to remember HALT. I know. I, yeah, I'm fascinated that I don't think I realized when we were having that discussion that it came from, you know, the recovery community. community. So, you know, that it's really fascinating, but they're very good they're very good questions to ask yourself. And so in the recovery world, it's, you could have a relapse. You're going to, you know, you're going to want that, that substance that, you know, puts you back together and makes you feel good again. But in the caregiver community, it's, you know, hungry, angry. I'd forgotten the angry and the lonely and the tired. So that, that means you're not, probably not going to treat your loved one. Um, as well as you might otherwise. Uh, You're not going to be on your game in terms of managing the meds and keeping your act together. Uh, The loneliness, that's that's a recipe for depression. Um, And, and, you know, we've talked about the tired. 
For those who've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking with Dr. Jamie Heisman. Pick it up from there, Jamie. Well, you know, just uh, in talking about um, exhaustion and, and the sleep deprivation that caregivers go through, we also forget of really the internal impact that has on our own organs, our own body. I mean, you, I've seen sleep disorders really occur extensively among the caregiving population. If you trace a lot of the research of, of that, you're also going to see issues with kidney disease and, and, and things like that. So, you know, it's not just, you know, it is exactly what you say. We, we're not on our game and we're not going to be safe for the person we're taking care of. But at the end of the day, we're definitely not going to be safe for ourselves because it creates its own sort of social withdrawal, anxiety, and depression in us, and which kind of, you know, acts on our own body in terms of cortisol. Well, it also suppresses our immune, you know, system. So we are much more susceptible to that seasonal flu, to whatever's going around at the time, um, if we haven't been getting enough rest. Exactly. So what I guess our listeners should take away from this is that, uh, first, number one, remember halt. Remember, take care of yourself if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Make sure you're moving and finding time for yourself. Um, we often talk in the show about, you know, using sort of relaxation techniques like, like mindfulness and breathing exercises, you know, things like that. But there's nothing that substitutes, again, for good sleep hygiene when you can actually literally prepare yourself to take sleep and put it on the altar of our lives and, and really respect it so you don't become so exhausted because we know every day is a challenge. Well, what do we need to do to have a good sleep environment? What would you recommend for somebody to try to get more rest? Well, you know, I, I'm probably the worst uh, person to say that because I'm, I'm certainly a hypocrite, I think, in, in the ways that, that it needs for, for good sleep hygiene. But obviously you don't want to exercise late at night, not that I do. You also want to make sure that you're not looking at your, your screen, your, whether, whether that's the telephones or the television or, or any sort of, uh, you know, screen that you could possibly look at that has electronics to it a couple hours before. You want to make sure that your lights are turned down. There's even incredible sunglasses, which are kind of yellow, opaque glasses, which tone down the lights around you. Well, they screen out um, the blue so, light. Yeah, they, they exactly. They screen out exactly that. They screen out the blue lights. So to, to me, there's, there's ways to actually deal with the, the sleep hygiene thing. So if your day is maniacal and it's overwhelming, which most caregivers are, uh, at least start taking a look at your life you know, prior to going to sleep. And, and then obviously when you wake up, if you can wake up without the anxiety and start waking up to a bit of mindfulness and meditation and, and to actually a routine that allows you positive thoughts and affirmations, uh, you'll be a lot better for that day. Carol, and, you get the last word. Well, and I would just add that that all that sleep hygiene, that also applies to the person for whom you're caring. So, you know, if you've yeah. got someone you're caring for and they don't get good rest or you have difficulty at night helping them to get to bed, you know, creating that nice environment. Think of the best hotel room you've ever been in where you walk in and the lights are low and the bed is comfy and the air is kind of on. It's all good. And it's not near the elevator bank. And it's not near the elevator or the ice machine. Hey, thanks for joining us on Take 10, the end of each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. We bring it to you with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and me, Ron Aaron. Talk with you, well, very soon on Caregiver SOS on-air on 930 AM, The Answer. 
You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.